Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's leading provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a tremendous variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device in your possession, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever you happen to have. And here's the deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial. That's right. It's now a 30-day free trial. That's twice as long as the old free trial. Go get some classics of world literature like Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy or Crime and Punishment by Dostoevsky or how about Dante's Divine Comedy. Any one of these titles can be yours free of charge. And if you do this, if you go get the freebie, it helps the program. I get a little kickback. That's nice. I enjoy that. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. This is a terrific deal. It's available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, did what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the voice in your head. This is me talking into your brain. My guest today is Maud Newton, the infamous Maud Newton. For anybody who spends any amount of time online in book world, she is a veritable household name. She's a writer, a blogger, a reviewer and an attorney at law. And she's at work on a novel, an excerpt from which won the 2009 Narrative Prize. And she's written for a variety of publications, including the New York Times, the LA Times, Book Forum, the Boston Globe, and the Owl. The Owl? The Owl. Uh, Just to name a few places. And I'm very excited to have her here on the program. Uh, And I should mention that this is the 50th episode of this program. 50 episodes. We've made it. Uh, Thank you once again to everybody for tuning in over the past few months and uh, giving this thing such a good launch. I appreciate it a ton, and uh, I look forward to more. So uh, otherwise, uh, where to begin? I want to discuss AWP. I'm just back in Los Angeles after a weekend in Chicago, and uh, there's plenty plenty to talk about. Uh, But more immediately, I want to talk about AutoZone. I want to talk about AutoZone. Uh, I spent a few hours 
not a few hours, a couple, two and a half hours at AutoZone today of all places. And uh, it started this morning when my wife reminded me uh, that I needed to call AAA and get my car jumped because uh, the battery had died before I left for AWP and uh, I just, I, I didn't get around to fixing it. So uh, I call AAA and the guy comes out and he jumps my car and he tests the battery and he tells me that the battery is essentially out of juice, you know, even though the jump worked, you know, as soon as I uh, turned the car off, it was going to be uh, trouble. And the only way to fix it was to go someplace like AutoZone and get the battery recharged, which he told me they would do for free. So I go over to AutoZone and it was, uh, it was actually my first time ever in an AutoZone. Uh, I'm not very mechanically inclined. I'm not one of those guys who's uh, good with tools, unfortunately. So I drive over there and I park. And as soon as I park, I'm in this strip mall. This woman comes out of a sushi restaurant right in front of me. Uh, and she tells me that I can't park in the spot that I'm in uh, if I'm not eating at the restaurant. So I say, okay, and I go to restart my car. Uh, but of course, the battery has already died because I turned off the ignition. So then I have to explain uh, to this nice woman, uh, this like Japanese American woman, that my battery has died and uh, I'm kind of stuck. So then I go over to AutoZone and I walk in and uh, immediately I am struck by the oddness of the scene. It was, uh, it was fluorescently lit and uh, there, there happened to be a, a young woman at the cash register. She was paying for something and it was clear that she was very upset and she was trying to convey that upset to the cashier who was male and about 25 years old. And so I'm standing there and uh, George Harrison's, <laughs> the, the song My Sweet Lord was on the uh, sound system and it was, it was on the speakers at an unusually loud volume, like almost excessive, but not quite. And uh, it was just an odd song to be hearing in an auto zone. Uh, and I made note of it as I stood there. And uh, within seconds of, uh, of uh, being there and noticing this angry young woman and uh, noticing that My Sweet Lord is playing uh, behind me, I hear this, uh, this guy uh, humming along with the song uh, at an excessive volume and, and with excessive feeling. It was just very strange. And so I, I turn around, I look over my left shoulder, and I see that it's a mentally disabled guy. Uh, about 45 or 50 years old and he's got an armload full of matchbox cars and uh, now he's singing and he's very happy and he's very loud and very friendly and uh, he's he's kind of humming and singing along with my sweet lord and uh, the cashier kind of gives him a wave which which seems to indicate familiarity and then uh, this girl has a word with the cashier and it's an angry word and he instructs her to go get something from a nearby aisle and she walks over there almost in tears and kind of disappears down the aisle and uh, I can hear her removing something from the shelf and when she does this something falls and there is the sound of breaking glass and immediately she's like I didn't do it the package was open I didn't do it it just fell out you know it's not my fault and uh this mentally disabled guy <laughs> who, who might I should also add he was dressed up in kind of hip-hop attire you know he's like it was very odd he was a middle-aged white guy and he was wearing like Adidas sweats and a t-shirt and uh, like black running shoes. And his hat was on backwards and everything was kind of oversized, if that makes any sense. And as soon as he hears this uh, glass shattering on the floor, uh, he starts shouting at the top of his lungs. Seven, seven years of bad luck. Seven years of bad luck. And uh, this girl hears this and emerges from the aisle and kind of turns the corner and is enraged. And she glares at this guy and starts shouting at him. She's like, thank you. Thank you. 
you know, like, uh, she doesn't mean it, obviously. Uh, and she doesn't realize that he's mentally disabled. She, she's uh, furious with him for uh, mocking her. And what's, uh, what's kind of funny about it is that he was totally unaffected by her anger. Uh, like, her shouting didn't bother him at all. And it was sort of this tense, awkward moment. And uh, My Sweet Lord was playing the entire time. And, and at the point that this all happened, like the breaking glass and the, and the you know, shouting uh, seven years of bad luck, it was the part of the song where, um, you know, they're kind of singing Hare Krishna and you know what I'm talking about. And it was just odd. I found it odd that I was there and that all of this was happening. And uh, long story short, I got my battery charged, uh, but it was so dead that I had to wait for more than an hour. So I wound up going into this sushi restaurant uh, and eating even though it was like this dirty strip mall and it wasn't appetizing at all, uh, I just kind of, I felt bad for having my car parked out in front, uh, in one of their like three slots and our spots. And, uh, I don't know. It was an empty, it was totally empty too. And that, uh, that bummed me out. And I felt bad for these people who were really nice. And, uh, it just seemed sad in this empty restaurant, you know, and like we talk about like rejection as writers, but imagine being, uh, you know, like a, a restaurateur. And, you know, you open, you open a restaurant and, and nobody shows up and every day you're just kind of standing there waiting in this empty restaurant. I just find that miserable. So I went in there and I had lunch and I sat at the counter and I talked to these people and I waited for my battery to charge. Uh, and it was an unexpected midday experience. So, uh, otherwise, uh, AWP, uh, it's a big, it was, that was a big experience and, and, uh, unexpected in many ways. And I'm still processing it. I was there on Saturday. It was a quick trip. It was a bit chaotic. And uh, it was very fun meeting people whom I've known online for months or even years. And to finally put a face with a name uh, and an avatar photo was great. So I got to say hello to people like Kevin Samsel, Derek Brown uh, of Right Bloody Press, uh, Cynthia Hawkins. I got to, I got to meet finally. Uh, B.L. Pollock and I had a good conversation. Blake Butler, Molly Gaudry, XTX, uh, Roxanne Gay who, uh, who hugged me despite her aversion to hugging, uh, Adam Wilson, who's been a guest on this program, Laura Vandenberg, Zach Dodson, uh, Melissa Broder, who will be on this program soon. Elisa Chappelle, who's also been a guest. So the list goes on and I'm forgetting quite a few people. And if you're one of them, please forgive me. Uh, my brain just isn't organized. And, uh, that was the, that was probably the highlight, you know, the people meeting folks, uh, catching up with old friends and, uh, you know, meeting some new people. And uh, hopefully I got the word out about this show and the nervous breakdown uh, to a lot of people who might actually be interested. Book people, uh, book nerds, and so forth. So, you know, in terms of what I actually did uh, at AWP, you know, most of, like, most all of my time was spent walking around in circles handing out these 4 by 6 cards that I had made up beforehand. And uh, I was doing that and I was talking to people and I think I handed out over like 1,200 of these things, ultimately. And uh, a lot of people had heard of the show and were, were actively, not actively listening when I was talking to them, but, you know, had had listened to quite a few episodes and uh, were fans, which was nice to hear. And uh, ultimately, uh, you know, I, th I think I wound up giving the same explanation of what I was doing several hundred times in a six-hour span. Like, I can't, uh, I can't overstate that. I was, I was talking and I was saying essentially the same thing, and I did it several hundred times in six hours which requires a lot of human energy. Uh, it was like I, w I was talking so much that I got dehydrated. <laughs> uh, 
uh, it was too much almost. And, and, you know, I'm a social person or I can be, I'm kind of right in the middle of the spectrum. Like I can do either thing really. I can be social, uh, or I can be by myself either way is fine. I think I like a little of both. Uh, but in this instance, I was hyper social and hyper talkative and functioning at a level that was way beyond my normal capacity. And, uh, at the end of the day, when it was all over with, uh, my brain was so decimated that I went back to my sister's place. Uh, she lives in Chicago and I was staying with her and I I remember going back there, uh, and she and her boyfriend were actually gone at the time. And so I just sat there alone in the dark, uh, for about an hour and uh, I drank a glass of wine and, uh, then I fell asleep while sitting up for a little bit. So that was my day. And I, you know, I don't have any audio from the trip. I had planned on doing that, you know, some on the ground reporting or whatever. Uh, but the reality on the ground was just much different than I had anticipated. And I was so busy, uh, that I didn't really have time to think or do anything. It, it was a mass of humanity and it swallowed me. And, uh, you know, I got to say, I feel a little deficient in that scenario to some extent, like, like, you know, I was watching this thing build up online and, and what I was seeing on social media, uh, like what other people were thinking and experiencing at AWP compared to what I actually experienced myself were two very different things. Like on social media, people were raving about it. Like it was summer camp or some kind of uh, epic concert or something. Like almost like it was a religious experience, a, tri- a trip to literary Mecca. And uh, I don't know, like I couldn't access it at that level. But uh, then, you know, I've, I have trouble accessing any kind of religious experience. Uh, you know, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to sound, uh, I don't want to be a downer. I was happy to be there. Uh, I was glad to be, you know, around uh, a lot of people that I like quite a bit. Um, but I was also glad to, to only be there for a day. And, uh, I don't know if that indicates some sort of deficiency on my part. Uh, and I certainly don't want to be a curmudgeon or rain on somebody else's parade. Uh, I'm very glad that people had fun. Uh, you know, fun is good. I think I just have a hard time processing that kind of chaos. And, uh, you know, it felt like work to me largely. And it was fluorescently lit just like AutoZone. So, and you know, there's also a, uh, an element of it that goes largely unspoken, but when you get that many writers together in a room in a giant hotel or two giant hotels and all this stuff is going on and there's thousands of us all in one room and all these writers are fighting, uh, for attention in the world of American letters. And, uh, there's such a limited amount of attention to go around, you know, uh, there's something Darwinian about it. I got to say, and it makes me a little uneasy, you know, there, there were, uh, a lot of nerves there in Chicago. I don't care what anyone says. A lot of exposed nerves pulsating all around me. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. 
It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. When I started book blogging, I really just did it because I didn't have a lot of friends who liked to read the same sorts of books I did, or if they did read them, they weren't interested in talking about them in exactly the same way that I was, or they they didn't agree with me about things and, and weren't sort of interested. You know, I, I'm just very very interested in storytelling and interested in books and I thought it would be best for me and for my friends if I just sort of created a space for myself where I could do that and um and what year was this this was like this was almost 10 years ago so this was in May of 2002 and and I think you'll find um you know I know Jessa Kristen who's a friend of mine now started book slut um, a little before I did, and hers was one of the sites I was reading um, that that motivated and inspired me, and Layla Lalami, who had at the time a site called Moorish Girl and who has since published a collection of short stories and a novel, she was also doing it, and Michael Orsifer of the Literary Saloon and Dennis Loy Johnson of, at that time, Moby Lives, uh, you know, there there were a lot of people blogging about books, and there were a lot of people blogging about culture. Um, actually, a lot of people is is incorrect. There were a few people doing these things, and um, it it seemed like a really novel thing to do, and and also like a fun thing to do. So I just started doing it, and I guess what I didn't realize when I started doing it is that. I felt like we were all having this uh, informal conversation with each other or just sort of randomly putting our our thoughts out into the ether almost in a sort of journaling way, um, but, but something a little bit more formal than that. And, um, and, you know, maybe once in a while someone who liked the same books we did would find us, but... Um, but actually what happened is that a lot of people who were professional critics and journalists started started reading blogs. And I think that was something that we didn't foresee. Um, at, the, at the time that I started, it was just a very small group of people sort of chatting amongst themselves and to themselves. Well, no, um, it's, it's amazing to me, too, that it was just 10 years ago, but like in the world of online that's like a hundred years ago you know like it really is it really is and i i meet a lot of um incredibly smart and talented younger uh bloggers now who who tend to do well i 
I mean, I often meet book bloggers, but I, I meet um, culture bloggers of all kinds, I guess. And it's it's difficult for them, I think, to understand what the environment was like then. I mean, a lot of them were, um, you know, in in their mid-teens, and so this this wasn't something that they were aware of, or if they were aware of it, um, it maybe seemed like something that was a lot more structured than it actually was for, for quite some time, for about a year and a half or two years. Um, it was a very small pool of people who were doing this. And, you know, most of us have have met in real life most of that early group of people. Um, at some point, we've we've encountered each other because it was such a small group that um, inevitably if someone was coming to town, even though most of us were a bunch of introverts, we would just be like, okay, well, let's all go out to a bar and meet each other. Um, and did you like each so, other? Was there any bad blood or was it generally like you, you totally got along? Um, well, I think for the most part, we did like each other then. And, and obviously there, there's, <laughs> there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. And, um, and, and some of those relationships, um, you know, have, have become closer and some to say the least have not. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was just a very friendly thing. The stakes were really, really low. We weren't making any money from it. Um, and I, I still don't make any money from my blogging itself, which which is something, <clears throat> insofar as my book blogging is concerned, that I've always insisted on. Why? Because I, um, I just don't really... Yeah, I mean, obviously, if I if I were to write a guest post for some other venue and it were a blog and they offered to pay me, I would happily take that. Um, but for my own site, I I never wanted to feel like I had to do it. I never wanted to have to deal with advertising um, and the sort of ethical conundrum conundra. <laughs> I'm not sure what the plural of that is um, that that raises. So I, um, you know, and I have a day job and I, I really didn't want my blog to become another day job. And, um, and what is your day so job? I, I write about tax law all day. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't work on Wednesdays, but yeah, I, I write and edit materials about tax law. And so, do, you, do you like that, or is that something that you you feel like you do to pay the bills? Can you can you talk about that? I mean, uh, well, you know, I I used to like it quite a bit because I I was extremely interested in tax policy. I worked when I was first out of law school. I worked for the Florida Department of Revenue as an attorney, um, and I I was um, basically. You know, there's no personal income tax in Florida, so more or less all the disputes I was involved in were with corporations, usually large ones, and um, it gave me a, a satisfaction to feel like I was making sure that these corporations were giving the state what the state was owed. Um, and then my husband finished up film school which is actually the reason that we moved to New York. Neither one of us really wanted to go to California. And um, 
so so we moved here so he could pursue um, film and TV stuff. And, um, yeah, and so I sort of lost the train of what we... Oh, so I so I, I was actually sad to, to leave that job. I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I did feel, you know, it's a cliche, but I felt like I was making a difference, a really significant monetary difference to the state. And and it may just have been because I was I was very young at the time, but then we moved here, and um, and then I worked for a short time for um, one of the big five accounting firms, and I talked to at, at the time the big five, and I talked to a couple um, law firms that specialize in in the area of tax that I was involved in, and I decided to just I didn't want to do that. I didn't enjoy being on the the corporate side of it, and um, so I decided to switch to publishing, and at first I, I took a certain amount of pleasure in summarizing things and just having an excuse to stay on top of things, and I think I felt that I might um, write about taxes for lay people, and the longer I've been there, the more my interests have drifted away from that. So I, I am still interested in tax policy, but it's difficult to maintain a really a real excitement about it when you look at the direction that this country has gone in tax policy wise. So, um, so yeah, for me now, it's it's basically a job. Okay. So then, what about you know your interest in writing? Uh... And and your interest in books, like, was that something, like, that you always knew was kind of in your back pocket and that you were going to do on the side, or did that kind of evolve after the... You know, I I always wanted to be a writer, and I was was obsessed with books when I was a kid. I I had a, a really pretty unhappy childhood, and I got through a lot of it by reading, um, just sort of... (laughs) <laughs> you know, tuning out everything that was around me and and reading as much as possible. I wasn't really allowed to watch very much television, um, so I was a voracious and indiscriminate reader. And uh, then I, you know, I I was an English major in college, and I I took some writing classes, and I I wrote a little bit, and I I really went to law school. Um, as a capitulation to my father, who who put a lot of pressure on me and who uh, basically, you know, wasn't going to help me pay for for any other kind of graduate education. And um, and to be fair to him, though though we are estranged, um, you know, I I was really not sure what to do with myself. I I wasn't really sure how being an English major was going to help me get a job. And so I just, you know, and, and frankly, this is, this is a testament to what a slacker I was at the time. I took the LSAT and then the GRE was the following weekend and it just seemed like too much trouble to take two standardized tests two weekends in a row. So I just sort of failed on that's, the GRE and and took the LSAT, and then I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to law school then. That sounds, um, that sounds so much like my decision-making process back when I was young. 
<laughs> yeah, it was really bad. I mean, and I knew I was going to hate law school, and and I did. Um, I really did. I I came to be really glad that I went, um, and I uh, I never anticipated that I would take tax classes, even though that's really what my dad wanted me to do. You know, he ha- he is an extremely extremely conservative person, and um. He had always said that, you know, my sister and I would go into business with with him and we would all be lawyers together. And, you know, and I capitulated to his wishes by signing up for one tax class. Um, it's, it's really odd to me now, looking back, how much I just sort of ultimately did what he said at that age. And, um, and then when I got in the tax class, it was really hard, but I was also amazed that I was, I mean, my law school was fairly conservative anyway, but I, I was the only liberal in the tax class. I was the only person, in fact, who didn't ardently believe that rich people should figure out how to save every possible penny of their money and, um, that, that taxes should be as low as possible. And so I I sort of found this passionate calling to do tax law because I felt like, well, if I can understand that, then at least one one person who is not of that political persuasion, you know, will will understand it and be able to explain it to to the people who are sort of being screwed by the system. Well yeah, and, I mean it's um, not it's not something that it's not something that a lot of people understand with any measure of depth, it seems like. Yeah, and I mean it's it's pretty dull. Um, but I, it became a sort of, well, not a sort of, it became a passion for me. And, um, and I, I was really, really committed to this. And, and I think probably if I had stayed in Florida, um, I, you know, I might have just had a really fulfilling life working for the government and, and focusing on that sort of thing. But even then, um, even when I was working for the state, I was, I was starting to write again. Um, I had worked for a law firm for a little while and I, I hadn't had any time to write and I didn't have much time at all to read for pleasure when I was in law school. And, um, and I think actually one thing that I felt really strongly you know, after law school, I, I had this experience of being really unsure what to read, and I would I would see stuff on tables, and I would pick it up based on blurbs. I was, you know, sort of target consumer for literary fiction. I loved stories. I didn't really know how to find them. I would read the New York Times book review sometimes, you know, and buy stuff based on that, and you know, and often I was disappointed, and at the time I thought, well, I guess I just must not be very smart, or I must not be as literary as I thought I was, um, because I had this very grand view of New York City publishing, you know, as this institution that didn't make any mistakes, and and then once I moved here. My attitude about it changed a lot, and <laughs> um, and I realized that a lot of people um, 
a lot of people who love stories have that feeling. They feel they they pick something up based on maybe they listen to NPR, so they read a review there and they're like, oh, this sounds cool, and then they pick up the book and they're like, actually, I don't like this at all. Um, and and that happens to them a couple, two or three times in a row, and then they start to feel like, well, maybe contemporary fiction isn't for me, or maybe you know, maybe I should just read the classics, or you know, um, you know, they they just start to feel intimidated, I think, and and very outside of that whole world. And when I started blogging, I think I was, I was. It was a way of coming back from that feeling, I guess, a way of, um, this, this sounds really grandiose, but reclaiming books for myself and just saying, well, this is what I like and this is why I like it and this is why this thing didn't work for me. And, you know, when I when I first started, again, I, I really had no idea that that I was going to be someone, you know, people were paying attention to. I really, it really felt like a small, fun conversation I was having with a few people. Well, when did, and then when did it change? Like, did you, could you, can you pin it down? Did you, do you remember a moment or a, you know, a period of time where you could feel a shift happening? I think that I know it, hmm, I know that it really changed for me. It changed a little bit when New York Magazine called and, wanted to include me in a, a little piece they were doing about blogs. Um, but it really changed for me a couple months after that. I believe it was October or November of 2003. Um, a writer named Jennifer Howard wrote an article for the Washington Post called It's a Little Too Cozy in the Blogosphere. And it was a real critique of this world um, that I was <laughs> I was intimately involved in, which she perceived as very cliquish and insular and um, and exclusionary, you know, and, and my response at the time and still basically my response today is well, you know, the price of entry is pretty low. You know, to just go to, at the time, blogger or whatever and hang out your own shingle and start blogging. You know, it's, I mean, especially then, um, it was such a small group of us that, that we were really engaging with almost everyone who was in it. Um, and so then that became, that set the tone a little bit for for the press that followed. I think some people were really perplexed by what we were doing. Some people felt that it was an assault on intelligent journalism, um, on intelligent reading, on reading itself, on, you know, our entire civilization. Well, what about, um, but what about, and, uh, what about like publishing was like, cause you know, you're talking about like the mainstream press and then did you find that the response was similar from people in publishing? Did they uh, view you guys and what you were doing with a similar level of skepticism, or was there a better reception? It was very mixed. It was. It's really. It's impossible to generalize about that. Um, you know, there were a couple of really smart editors, and and I don't just say they're smart because of what I'm getting ready to say, but they, you know, they got in touch with me and a couple other people fairly early on. 
Um, they, I think they were excited. They saw potential for their books. Um, they were good at, for the most part, sending me stuff that I actually liked. Um, not, not always, you know, actually. Uh, often I, I wouldn't write about their books. But, you know, once a year, once every year and a half, they would send me something that really clicked and, um, and I wouldn't be able to shut up about it. And I think that was the real power of a blog that, that um, you know, you still find that to some degree, but that sort of personal um, championing of something and the sort of like obsessive mentioning of it and coming back to it, um, you know, I think that that is something that, that blogs offered that, you know, that a lot of other venues didn't, even if they, even if the New York Times uh, reviewed a book three or four different times and, and had a style piece on it and a, and a whatever piece on it. It wasn't the same as seeing that book reflected through one person's obsession. And so I think that was some, some editors saw that, you know, Mark Sarvis or Jessica Crispin or, um, you know, I, I'm going to insult people by, by forgetting to mention them, but, you know, George Murray of Book Ninja or, you know, a, a lot of people who, Lizzie Skernick, you know, we would become fixated on something and then it was just this, um, and, and sometimes other people would read it online as a result and there would be a conversation and, you know, but then at the same time there were publishers who were, and I think still are, um, skeptical about the value of personal blogs, uh, which are which are a form that has um, receded a little bit. I think. Um, yeah, I was going to say. And, I feel like I feel like people aren't blogging as much as they used to, and I have no like real evidence for that other than just like what I, I guess, kind of what I see and how I just sort of feel, and and then personally what I do, like. There's not as much yeah. as there was like five years ago, you know? And why do you think that is for you? Uh, yeah, you know, I feel like part of it is that I just burned out because I was doing so much of it. And then the other part of it, which is more prominent, just has to do with the fact that I'm so busy doing other stuff. Like I'm facilitating more than I'm blogging right. because I'm putting this thing together, uh, you know, at the nervous breakdown and then doing this podcast and, you know, everything. And I had a Well, and I so. said, well, yeah, I mean, that. Wow, that's a lot. Um, I, I didn't the have nervous one, but, break. You know, <laughs> right, my, right. My wife had the child, but I, uh, I'm helping I, her raise it. I, I hear that can be a little time consuming. It's um, a, yeah. Bit, I have a, a stepdaughter, so so I know a little bit about that. She's 18, but um, but I, I remember well when she was when she was in diapers. Um, so uh, I think for myself. The, um, well, I, I guess what I was going to say, first of all, is that, you know, I see sites as sites like the Nervous Breakdown or the Millions or the Rumpus or HTML Giant or, um, the Second Path, which Sean Williams is doing before he went to work for the Times. Um, I see these as the, um, the form that makes sense for now, you know, they're, they're sort of their own communities, but they also have a large community of readers. Um, they, uh, it's, it's makes sense 
to it's you know it's a more magazine approach to to blogging and um and I do think that blogging has become more professionalized there are there are certain ways that things are normally done now and and I don't think that's um good or bad you know I think what the Los Angeles Review of Books is doing is really interesting um the new inquiry is really interesting. I mean, there there are a lot of experiments out there, um, and and I'm also really happy for the most part about the increasing emphasis on long form. Um, you know, I write for the All sometimes, and they're not primarily a literary site, but you know, they they do a lot of long form stuff that's really good and. Um, and I think that's that's an exciting thing to see. the The personal blog, um, yeah. I mean, I I think I'll keep doing mine intermittently at about the same level that I've been doing it for the last couple of years because I, it's it's comforting to me to have it there and to to check in once in a while. And if I want to post a bunch of stuff in a week, I can. Um, but I don't think that that's what people are primarily looking for on the Internet now. I mean, a lot of that sort of thing has migrated to Tumblr and Facebook. And Will you explain to me what to, Tumblr is? Like, I, my, my own personal website is on a Tumblr, and I don't even know what Tumblr is. Like, what's the, it, It's just like a social media blog thing. I know I should probably know this, but like... What distinguishes I think it? that's right. It's it's a, it is a blog, um, but it has this, you know, the the reblog feature. Uh, and just for for people who haven't used Tumblr, I guess I should say that the reblog feature is sort of like a retweet on Twitter. You can pick up what someone has said, um, but you can add to it. Um, in Twitter, often there's no no room to add, but you can add to what the person has said. You can add your own anecdote. You can respond. You can criticize. You can um, you can do whatever you like, and and it's all there in the thread below the post. So it has this hybrid blog, Twitter, Facebook um, quality, and it's. Um, I, I think it's an exciting form. It's, uh, I, you know, Laura Miller, Salon's book critic, and I have uh, recently started a website that's about basically about the iPad and other tablets and about the potential for art and storytelling on those. Um, it's the Chimerist. How, how do you pronounce this? It's, the, it's called the, the Chimerist? The Chimerist? I say, <laughs> I say Chimerist. Chimerist. Um, there you go. Yes, yes. I and I, I believe that's how Laura pronounces it as well. Um although someone recently said chimerist and um Laura and I have done almost all of this in email. So I'm so I'm you know, I feel like I need to check with her and, and make sure that I'm pronouncing it the right way. Uh but or or at least that we're agreed on pronunciation. But I, I think it's I think it's chimerist. Um and uh yeah, so that's on a Tumblr, and and what is um, that? Where can people find that? And then what exactly is it? It is at thechimerist.com, and 
I think we're still figuring out exactly what it is. We're both people who love books and technology, which I think makes us a little bit weird uh, because for understandable reasons, a lot of people who love books are, are a little skeptical about technology and they want to hang out with their books. And I, I totally understand that because I, I love to hang out with my books. Um, but I, you know, I was a real early adopter of the internet and, and Laura even more so. She was one of the founders of Salon and I'm just really interested in the different ways that people communicate. I'm really interested in different kinds of storytelling, even though by and large I end up, you know, gravitating most toward um, toward novels, you know, as far as written storytelling goes, or, or toward, you know, works of, of, you know, literary nonfiction or or biographies or what have you. Um, you know, I, I'm excited about the tablet computer. I think it's a new thing and, and Laura's excited about it too. And so this is, I think, an excuse for us to be adventurous, to try new apps, to talk about them with each other. And when we feel like it, talk about them on the internet. Um, and and we'll see where it goes. I don't I don't really have a clear picture of 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 what we're doing yet. Well, and, but that's, um, that sounds sort that's of part sim- of the fun. Well, no, that sounds sort of similar to how you started book blogging. I mean, because it brings me. Yeah, up- that's how I feel about it. I I have the same sense of excitement about it. I feel a kind of uncertainty about what it is and and an excitement and uncertainty about where it might go and I also feel very much like hey you know if both of us or one of us decided to walk away in two weeks that would be fine um so so yeah it's it's kind of a weird project and you know considering that I'm trying to finish a novel maybe maybe not the best thing to have launched right now but <laughs> oh I can relate to, I can relate to that <laughs> More than you want to know. I well, no, I I'm always interested in other people's uh, stories of procrastination. Well, it's just uh, like t- writers can really come up with some amazing stuff. Uh, or just like, or I just, or just being like excited by too many things, like you know, and easily distracted. You know, I feel like that's my problem. Exactly. I, I jump into things so easily, and then all of a sudden, I'm uh, I'm up to my neck in it, but. You know, one of the things before we we uh, shift gears that I wanted to ask you related to what we were just talking about is the issue of timing. Because things are changing so fast, because the landscape you know seems to mutate in significant ways, like you know every year, if not more quickly than that. Uh, when you look back on when you got into book blogging, uh, in particular, and then you compare it to, to somebody who's trying to start now, do you ever do you, do you feel lucky that you? Have- oh, I feel absolutely. Absolutely lucky. I I think it was, um, yeah. I I do. I I think that um, it was it was largely a matter of timing, and that we you know we started at a time when when no one else was doing this, and you know, uh, three years earlier I probably wouldn't have done it, and three years later I might have been doing something else, and. Um, absolutely. I feel, I feel incredibly lucky, because... uh, but I also feel 
that the internet is still an amazing place for people to create their own thing. You know, I mean, to me, the chimerist is, is that, you know, just, I, I just, I'm, you know, I'm a little bored with book blogging. I'm, I, I love books, but I, I don't, I'm not really um, interested in blogging as much as I used to. I'm, I'm moving away from, from reviewing uh, because I, I've decided that I think it's very important. I think that balanced criticism, negative criticism, um, positive criticism, it's vital to a healthy um, literary world. But I also think that for me personally, writing reviews with the sort of level of intense concentration and honesty that that I require of myself is actually not good for my writing, for my novel writing. Um, and that I, I'm more interested at least at the moment in, you know, broader cultural criticism that may be filtered through books or in um, talking with authors I love or profiling authors I love or writing about books I love. And I'm, I'm, moving away from, um, from, you know, I, I never set out to be a book reviewer and that's something that I've really forced myself to realize in the last year that I just, not something that I, I necessarily want to be doing with my time. Okay. So that's, but that's interesting. Like when, especially the part about where you talk about, uh, how it affects your, your fiction writing, like what is it specifically right. about writing a book review or working you know, the part of your brain that deals with criticism that affects the creative aspects? I, I think that my, I'm, a, I'm an extremely perfectionistic person, um, and also I have extremely idiosyncratic tastes. Um, and I think when you're writing fiction, both of those things are very important. But it's also important to be able to sit down and write the thing that you need to write and um, and then bring ideally the perfectionism to bear on it and on it later um, I, I think i my feeling is that I've spent a lot of time focusing on books that um, you know maybe maybe I wouldn't necessarily have, have read so intently if I hadn't set out to review them and that I, I just need to be able while I'm writing to focus on the things that are feeding that desire to write and also to um, give rein to those critical impulses, these very natural critical impulses that I have only to the extent that they're helpful to my own writing. Um, it, it can be extremely paralyzing, I think, when you're just constantly looking at everything in a really critical way uh, to then go to your own work and try to be forgiving of your own shortcomings and your own bad sentences and, and your own failure to, you know, create 
whatever it is that you're trying to create. And, um, yeah, and I, I've, I've decided that at least right now that, that kind of reviewing is, is just not something that's working in the favor of my own writing. Hmm. And I wonder if it works in the, in the opposite, uh, respect as well. Like, I wonder if you're a professional critic and then you decided to start to dabble in actually writing creatively, if suddenly that would diminish your skills as, as a, you know, your critical skills. You know what I'm That's saying? That's a really good question. And, and I think, I mean, I, obviously there are, are many people who can do both things well. Um, I mean, if you look at someone like Daniel Mendelssohn, um, who, you know, uh, as far as I know, he's not a fiction writer. I, I may be embarrassing myself, but I, I believe that he has has only written nonfiction. But he writes beautifully. Um, I, I mean, I I disagree with him um, often, but he he writes beautifully as a critic and um, and just as a as a writer as a storyteller. And uh, so it, so it's hard to generalize, but. I'm sure that there must be critics who, um, whose critical uh, acumen or, or critical standards are thrown off balance a little bit as they try to, to write um, more creatively. So speaking of writing creatively, like I, I want to hear more about the novel that you're working on. And is, this is the same book that... Um, the, the excerpt from which won the narrative prize, correct? It, it is, yes. I've been working on it for mumble, mumble years now. And, um, yeah, it, it is it is that book. And, um, do we have a title? You know, I was just, we do. Um, and I really, really like the title, and I'm not sure when I'm going to be done with it. So I'll, I'll tell you the title, but, but I'm not going to tell you for the podcast because – I'm I'm constantly afraid that someone else is going to use it because it's one word and it's a really great title. Okay. Um, if I do say so myself, um, you know, if if down the line I finish it and um, and you know I'm fortunate enough that it's going to be published, maybe the publisher will disagree with me and make me change the title. But right now the title is the only thing I feel sure about. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, that's a start, right? Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, it's a whole—it's a whole word. Um, yeah. So, this has been a real, um, a really long project. And uh, what what would you like to know about it? Well, I, I think like one of the things about it is that interests me is the essay that you wrote, I believe, for the Los Angeles Times uh, after you won the narrative prize. And forgive me if I'm screwing up the. The, oh, no, that's right. You're, yeah, you're right about that. You wrote an essay, and it was the decision that you made to write your story as a novel rather than to write it as a memoir because, uh, as you alluded to earlier, you know, you had a pretty uh, difficult childhood, which, you know, despite its uh, – despite the troubles, you know, inherent in that, it tends to lend itself well to uh, a memoir or storytelling in general. You know? Absolutely. So yeah. what, can, yeah. what was the decision-making process where you said, well, I'm going to mine this material um, just as any writer does. You know, they're going to turn inward at least to some extent, but I'm, I'm going to fictionalize it rather than write it uh, as a memoir. Like, what, what, why did you arrive at that place? Well, I, I think 
you know, there was a time when I was being encouraged to write a memoir of the sort that was very popular about five to eight years ago. Um, the sort of, you know, memoir about the miseries of my childhood and overcoming those miseries and, and, um, and that's not really the way that I see my life exactly. I, yes, um, obviously I've, I've moved beyond a, a lot of that, but I, I also feel that it, it continues to, um, to define who I am in some ways. And I, I just, I, I didn't, there seemed to be a sort of boilerplate, uh, way of, of, writing a memoir at the time. And so I think, you know, partly that essay was um, a little bit of a delayed reaction to that that um, encouragement that I had gotten. But I I also think, you know, I'm, I have no issue. I mean, I, you know, I wrote an essay called Conversations You Have at 20. And, you know, it's a pretty blunt essay about you know, a, a little bit of stuff from my childhood and about this terrible relationship that I had when I was in college. And, um, you know, it's, it's, I really didn't hold anything back there. Um, so I, I don't have an issue with telling people what my life has been like. It's a question of what makes for the kind of truth that I'm trying to tell, what the best the best way to arrive at that truth. And um, my feeling with this particular book, which has changed a lot over time and, and is changing again, um, is that I'm trying to tell a kind of truth that really can only be told through fiction. Um, and, in, and in fact, over time, it's become better and better the more I've moved away from my own life. So um, I'm taking feelings from my own life and to some degree experiences from my own life, but I'm, I'm changing them into something different. And it may be that later on I, I will write essays about, about some of the things that actually happened, but I just don't really feel a desire to write a memoir, and um, you know, I, I had a lot of ideas about why that was when I when I wrote that LA Times piece, and I still stand by a lot of what I said there. But I, I think also it's it's just a personal preference. You know, I'm just not drawn to that form, and um, I I would be more likely to tell little stories in essays, I think, than to write a long. Um, memoir and you know there and there are great absolutely wonderful um, memoirs um, that I I would never be able to write so I, I feel a little bit like I in the moment I I was a little bit more dismissive of the genre than I actually um, feel is is right yeah, that well, I mean, that's fair, sense. though. You know, like, that's the thing. I mean, it, it's people sometimes, I think, hold, you know, writers uh, or people who are thinking aloud publicly, you know, to a, to that, uh, like, an 
irrational standard, which is to say that it, you know, you can't change your mind or, you know, that once it's said, that's what it all, you know, that's how you always feel. But, you know, it's always just kind of like a stamp in time and then things mutate, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I read this memoir last year, uh, written by this, um, she, she lives in LA and she's lived in New York, but she's a British writer, uh, from London named Emma Forrest. And, um, it, it was just such a lovely memoir. It was about her, um, relationship with her psychiatrist who died. And it was also about her relationship with Colin Farrell, um, the actor and uh, who, who had been her boyfriend. And it was called Your Voice in My Head. And it was uh, a completely unique piece of writing that I still... Um, that I still think about often. There was a line in there, something like, um, mania rushes, like, it was, it was more beautiful than this, but something like, mania rushes like water approaching a waterfall, uh, depression is a stagnant pond or something like that. And, and the whole book is just filled, of these, filled with these poetic um, but very plain-spoken metaphorical comparisons and, and insights that I, um, that really, really impressed me. And so, so I think that memoir is, is a form that, you know, holds many possibilities and I just don't think that I'm a memoirist fundamentally. So do you have any, any set sense, uh, in your mind of when this novel is going to be done? Have you given yourself a deadline or do you feel like you're close or do you have no idea? Well, I had given myself a deadline, and I I finished um, most of a draft of it, the, the vast majority of a draft of it, and I I showed it to um, a friend of mine with whom I had, you know, she's an agent, and and we had talked about the possibility of working together. But I, you know, I had also talked with a lot of other agents over time, and I. I wasn't really planning to make a decision when I showed it to her. I just showed it to her to kind of see what she said. I knew it still needed some work. And I really felt that what she said was right. Um, she asked me, I had decided to, to break up what I was trying to do into two different books. And she asked me why I had done that. And I said, that it was because I thought what I wanted to do was too ambitious and I wasn't sure if I could do it. And she said, well, that's not a good reason. And she said, you know, this, this is really good. Um, but I think what you really want to do is do that other book. I think that you want the more complex story. And she, you know, she said she, she could, <laughs> I don't know if this is exactly how she put it, but I, I think she said or implied that she could feel that other story straining to get out because it was still in there a little bit. And I knew she was right when she said that. And she she had some other comments that I wasn't sure about, and, and we met a couple of times, and I really explained to her my thinking about a few things, and she was able... Um, to ex 
explained to me a couple of things, why a few things, I'm sorry I'm speaking so vaguely, but basically, uh, you know, this one character, she was able in a sentence to explain to me why the character wasn't as fully realized for her as she wanted the character to be. And what she said was just so insightful and brilliant that I completely understood what I needed to do. And I, and then I just felt, you know, we really need to work together. You know, I recognize again that I'm extremely fortunate to be in the position of, of, you know, of being able to show something that I thought was finished, but turns out not to be finished to an agent and then have her be willing to, to talk with me about it on an, on an ongoing basis. Um, I, I do recognize that that's really a luxury these days. Uh, but I, I really trust her. And, you know, I've talked to other agents over time, and, and they've had some really good thoughts and whatnot. But I I just knew after our conversations that that she was the right person to work with and that she really got what I was trying to do and that she, was, she wasn't going to, be, to tell me no, that's not working, you have to do this instead. But she was going to be able to tell me, okay, well, here's why this this isn't fully there yet. Here's, here's the thing that's missing from what you're trying to do. And ultimately, I, I am a perfectionist. And, you know, what she said to me, you know, that's not to say the novel will be any good when it's done. That's, that's up to, to critics to say. But, um, you know, obviously, I hope it will. But, you know, she said to me, you're the kind of person who you want to write the best novel you can write, and you shouldn't feel pressured to rush. You should just take the amount of time it takes for you to write that book. And that was really um, calming and affirming to me, and I, I just... It was a message that I that I really needed to hear because I had just started to feel like, oh my God, I'm the most ridiculous person in the world. I've been talking about a book that doesn't even exist on the internet for years, and I just need to get it done. And she really helped me move past that way of thinking. Hmm. Um, that's so, in, that's interesting to hear. No, I mean because I'm. I'm talking about the book that I'm working on on this show, and then some mornings I'll sit down to work on it, and I'll be like, "Oh God, I better this better be good, you know? <laughs> like, I, I better get this done soon so that people know that I'm not completely, you know, full of it or whatever it is." But, you know, it's it's just an odd tension in creative life, and I've talked about this recently with people, uh, possibly on this show, where. Uh, you know, always in hindsight, it seems I look back and I get very nostalgic about the actual process of writing something and how much fun it was, you know, when I'm looking at, looking at it in the rearview mirror. But uh, when I'm actually working on something, there's like this almost desperate desire to to get it over with and get it out of me. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's this weird tension, like where I look back on a God, you know, the, the doing of the thing was really the good part. Right. And when I'm actually doing the thing, I'm like, let's just get this over with. I just want it to be externalized. And I think that's normal, you know, but it doesn't make it make that, you know, any more sense, if, you know? Yeah, it's, I think everyone's, everyone's sense of the writing process and which part is the most horrible is, you know, it's sort of variable. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and for me, I know it varies depending on, on what I'm doing at the time, usually meaning that that part is, is the most horrible part of writing. But um, I think I mostly, the thing I enjoy most is sentence-level revising when I'm basically satisfied with something and now I'm just really going in there and going over every comma and trying to figure out what it is about this one sentence, why it's still frustrating me. Um, you know, that that level of writing I enjoy, but the, with very rare exceptions, um, writing writing fiction is always really difficult for me. Um, That's nice to hear. I I, I can never hear that enough. You know, I like knowing that there are other people out there suffering, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I I completely agree. Well, you're not alone. I promise you. Um, and, and judging from conversations with friends, you, you know, you have a multitude of company. So, um, (laughs) Well, before we uh, before I let you go, I want to ask about uh, your childhood. You know, you've alluded to it in the conversation several times, and you know, without getting too um, sensationalist about it, like I just want to know, like, you know, how how did you grow up, and like, what formed you and made you into a writer? Like, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I can. I mean, I I definitely don't think we have enough time to to discuss like all of the ways in which my childhood was was absurd and um and 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 bad. Um I I think when I was very little I I came to my parents were both really, really intense and obsessive people who rarely agreed about anything. So um I think from a fairly young age I became attuned to certain kinds of absurdities that a, that a lot of children are shielded from because their parents present a more united front. I mean, there was, you know, there was a lot of religious extremism in my family. There was, you know, my father is a, an extremely, extremely overbearing person who, um, you know, but, but also just have sort of weird antisocial behaviors, you know, like, I mean, I, I, I hate to tell this story because it really freaks people out. But, like, you know, after my parents divorced, he would be making toast for my sister and me. And, like, you know, he'd never clean out the toaster, but he'd always make cheese toast and cheese would fall on the bottom of the toaster. So then there would be a roach in the toaster. He would remove the cheese toast from the toaster, spray right into the toaster, wait until the roach had stopped twitching, and then put the toast back into the toaster and finish cooking it and serve it to us. And so there was just a lot of sort of crazy stuff going on that um, <laughs> that I was at a pretty early age aware wasn't normal, um, but that I didn't really feel I had any power to affect. Um, you know, my mom believed in demons and professed to see them everywhere. And I, I believe that she believes that she saw and sees them everywhere. Um, I never saw them. So that was, but I, I passionately loved my mother and I, I passionately wanted her to be right and my father to be wrong. So, um, so it was a very confusing childhood. And I think that, um, I came to, be very good at 
seeing other people's points of view and, you know, trying to anticipate um, how how people would react to things. And, and for whatever reason, all of that seemed to lead me towards storytelling. Uh, my mother is a, is a storyteller. She was a preacher for, yeah, what for a religion, number of years. What religion were you raised in? I mean, was it a... Like one of the, one well, of the I, I actually, I actually, and I, I know we're running out of time, but I actually, um, I just wrote an essay for the New York Times Magazine. So, you know, if it if it doesn't get killed, it, it will be a little bit about this. But um, my my parents were, my mother was raised atheist, my father was raised Methodist. Um, when I was a young child, between the ages of three and four, they became Presbyterian together, and they were like a born-again sort of version of Presbyterian. But my mother soon became disenchanted with the predestination aspects of of Presbyterianism, meaning that humans don't actually have free will, um, that, that everything is preordained. And so she started reading her own Bible and ultimately became uh, speaking in tongues, casting out demons, storefront preacher type of person. Um, and a lot of her congregation was, um, you know, drug addicts and, and uh, some prostitutes and, you know, just people who were really looking for salvation of one kind or another. And um, so... And you were there among... You, know, the, you, you were there in the in the congregation with these people? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and my parents divorced over that. I mean, they used to have, like, screaming arguments about religion in the front yard with my mother, like, tearing pages out of the Bible and myself. It was crazy. Um, but, yeah, and then I, I wrote a little thing for Granta a number of years ago about, it's, it's online, it's very short, um, about this prostitute who went to my mom's church who unbeknownst to my father, was living with us before my parents got divorced, and she was um, she was living in my bedroom. And, <laughs> a, very, uh, a very normal childhood experience. <laughs> yeah, I would wake her up in the morning before he came in to wake me up for school, and she would get in the closet. Wow. So, um, yeah, so it was, I mean, and, and this is sort of, just really scratching the surface of, of the, the bizarreness of it all. But, um, but yeah, so, so I, I think I'll just stop there. Yeah, well, and, uh, you know, <laughs> there's, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff. I mean, I can, you say this and you just skim the surface and you get started and immediately like, I'm, I want to read about this. So I kind of understand, you know, it helps me to understand why people were pushing you in the direction of a memoir and at the same time, it makes me uh, interested to see what you'll come up with uh, with this novel that you're working on, because I'm sure in some way, shape or form, a lot of these different anecdotes and experiences are going to find their way in there, even if they're reconstituted or, you know, uh, changed a bit. Yeah, I mean, that was my original thought. And, and it, I'm, I'm moving away from some of that, which may mean that I end up writing some essays about that stuff instead, or or they may find their way back in. And I feel very much, I feel much more focused right now with the novel on the narrator's present day life, quote unquote, which is which is a lot less 
directly connected with me. So that's the part that I'm working on now. And as that part consumes my imagination, some of the the stuff about her younger years um, seems less relevant. And I, I don't think that I will have a clear picture of how it's all going to end up fitting together until I've finished writing about her her quote-unquote present-day life in the book. Well, you know, uh, it sounds fascinating, and uh, I, I'm eager to see uh, what it looks like when it's done, and I appreciate you taking the time to come talk with me. This has been really great. Well, thank you. This has been wonderful. I've, I've really enjoyed it, and I look forward to seeing your book, too. All right, Maude. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, guys, there you go. That's the program. That's Maude Newton. You can find her on the web at MaudNewton.com. Uh, she's on Facebook and she's on Twitter. Her handle is at Maud Newton. Don't forget, this show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. And if you're not yet subscribing over at iTunes, please go do that. It's free and it's easy and it's enjoyable. Uh, you can also find the show on Stitcher, also free. So if you're a Stitcher person, please go subscribe there. Uh, if you want to follow the program on Twitter, the handle is at otherpeoplepod. You can follow me at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the theme song music. Please be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And thanks to Valley Jones for the transitional music. So uh, final thoughts on AWP and Chicago. Uh, I do have to say I love Chicago. It's a great town, great people, great bars, uh, amazing food. It is uh, the perfect city in which to uh, have events like AWP, weather notwithstanding. And uh, the travel experience was pleasant. Uh, good flights going and coming, uh, except for the fact that American Airlines did not have Wi-Fi on my flight home, which I found onerous and uh, unnecessary. Uh, you know, and flying in general, always an interesting experience. There was a woman on my flight back to Los Angeles who was comically well prepared for travel. Uh, she had her neck pillow. She had large noise canceling headphones. She had a water bottle belt, like a, an actual belt with water bottles and holsters. And uh, she also had a lanyard around her neck into which her driver's license and her boarding pass were stuffed. And uh, she was sitting right in front of me, and she was so absurd that she made me feel good about things. Uh, I'm a little bit of a nervous flyer, as I think almost everyone is, at least a little bit. And whenever I board a plane, I'm always looking around at the other passengers trying to decide if they seem doomed. You know, it's, it's always like, uh, is this the group of people that I'm going down with? Is today the day? Is this the group? And uh, And then I saw that woman... And uh, immediately knew that I was okay. Somehow. I was just like, there's no way I'm going down with this broad. No way. It's not happening. So, uh, I think that's it for today. That's number 50 in the can. It's done. It happened. Uh, I'm hungry. And I'm going to eat something. Please enjoy yourself. Please remember that Albert Einstein was an agnostic. Please remember that Cyrano de Bergerac was the first person in recorded human history to suggest that rocket ships might one day take us into outer space. And uh, please remember the famous last words of George Harrison uttered just before he passed away. Know what they were? Three words. Here's what he said. Love one another. That's it. That's what he said. And uh, I think that's, uh, is that profound? That's all you need to know. Uh, hallelujah. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. <laughs>